Acts 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Well, we are, uh, two things we need to be said about this evening's uh, sermon. Uh, we are following on from the, the uh, discussion at the home groups rather than the usual pattern of having a sermon and then studying it. So we're doing things a little bit back to front. Uh, the other thing to be said is that this evening we are unashamedly looking at bread and butter issues. Uh, this is the ABC of the Christian life that we're about uh, this evening. And I am absolutely convinced that uh, this needs to be uh, repeated again and again and again in the church of Christ because we are so prone uh, to drift from the convictions uh, with which we started and the commitments that we made at the beginning uh, in these areas. We're doing uh, a series which is entitled Living as the Children of God and it's all about the, the great privilege that we have to be brought into God's family. So everything that we're, that we're looking at under this heading is in regard to God as Father, uh, Jesus as our elder brother, and the privilege of what it is to be adopted into the family of God. It's the greatest privilege that you have as a Christian. If you're a believer, there is nothing more precious, nothing more elevated, nothing more majestic than the title of being called a child of God. It's the height of redemptive privilege. And that's why we're spending a bit of time exploring this. What, you might ask, has Bible reading, prayer, and the church got to do with uh, adoption? Well, this, an earthly family, an ordinary family, is bound together by certain commitments that everyone in the family holds. Uh, commitments without which the family would fall apart. The family would simply operate as a bunch of individuals rather than as a family. There needs to be a commitment uh, to things that the family sees as important. For example, we come together to eat meals. Commitment to when we do that. Commitment to washing or showering regularly. Commitment to coming home at a certain time. And so on and so on. There are so many of these rules uh, that you would have had in your family or have in your family that we, don't, we really don't think about them. They're, they're almost subconscious. But we are committed to them. We are devoted to the family and we, we respect the expectations of the family. This is what holds our families together. And in the family of God, we do the same. We show commitment to our Heavenly Father by a host of family commitments and we devote ourselves to those. These are what hold the family of God together. Now, Acts 2.42 is a remarkable 
summary of the early church's growth and activity. It's not, uh, Acts 2 is not, as some people say, the, the birthday of the church. Have you maybe heard that before? That the church was born in Pentecost. Well, it wasn't born in Pentecost at all. Uh, Pentecost was the giving of the Spirit. Uh, Pentecost was uh, an explosive period of growth. But the church is much older than Pentecost. Uh, we go back to Abraham. We go back to the promise of uh, God given to Abraham of a great family that none could number. Uh, we see the fulfillment of that until this family are brought together at the first assembly of God at Sinai, where hundreds of thousands of the people of God receive the law of God and covenant with God as their king. But what we have in verse 42 is a remarkable snapshot of what was automatic in the lives of the new Christians. 3,000 people brought into the church a kind of remarkable uh, spiritual phenomena. But these are the things to which the, the new Christians devoted themselves. These are the things that are central in the growth of the church. This is the ABC of the Christian life, which we ignore to our peril. Key word, as we said uh, to the young people, is the word devoted. They devoted themselves. It's a strong word. It means to continue faithfully, to remain constant. Now, that kind of uh, superglue attachment to something is a very rare commodity to do. People are, are ready to give uh, you know, flash-in-the-pan enthusiasm to something. Uh, they will show short-lived uh, commitment to, to certain aspects of Christian living. But the Christian life is essentially an ongoing devotion to the, the service of God expressed in the, the ways that God has commanded. Our family of God commitments are to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, uh, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the ABCs of the Christian life. And we need to be reminded of those commitments periodically and of the fact that in, in keeping to these commitments, we're not earning salvation, but we're honouring our Father in heaven. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That, that's, that really, that little chorus has got a good title to being one of the most profound little songs, hasn't it? You know, it's like, uh, Jesus loves me. Uh, there's profundity there. Because it's so true. If you read your Bible, pray every day, you'll grow. Uh, <laughs> You can go to lots of conferences about the Christian life and you won't necessarily grow, but if you read your Bible, pray every day, God promises growth. And the early church did that, and the Lord added to their number daily such as should be saved. Read your Bible, pray every day, you'll grow, grow, grow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. The apostles taught the new believers uh, this greatly enlarged flock of 3,000, they taught them what Jesus had taught them. 
during his earthly ministry, during his three years on the road with them, during uh, the time between his resurrection and his ascension, they taught them all that Jesus did. They taught them the significance of his death and resurrection. They taught them concerning Jesus Christ. And their method would have been Jesus' method. It would have been the method that Jesus had with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning themselves. Now this is one of the, the, uh, the thrilling uh, gear changes, if you like, for the new Christian, when we discover that uh, Moses and all the prophets are speaking about Jesus. I remember when that was just such a, a revelation to me. I got so excited at, at that fact that Jesus is there throughout the Bible. It's all about him. It's his story. Uh, there's not this big discontinuity between the two Testaments. You know, the, the Old Testament's all law and warfare, and the, the New Testament is grace in Jesus. It's rubbish. It's his story, and Moses and the prophets and the law and the Psalms are all about Jesus. He's there. I think it was Alec McHugh that used to say that uh, what Christians need to do is to go for that blank page between uh, the New and the Old Testament in your Bible, tear it out, because it's one story, one revelation concerning the Son. And as we come to our Bibles, we see uh, in so many ways the unity expressed. We've been thinking about how the, the fatherhood of God and the family of God uh, idea brings unity to our Bibles. Uh, so we look at our Bibles and we see creation. Adam enjoying sonship. Uh, we see fall, uh, family exile. We see promise, Abraham promised uncountable uh, family members. We see redemption, the price paid for our adoption. We see renewal, the family enter their inheritance. One big storyline, the unfolding story of redemption. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were absolutely committed. Wild horses would not have prevented them from being where the apostles were teaching them about Jesus. We're thinking uh, in these days about the Reformation and uh, been great to, to have had time just to, to remind ourselves of how important that uh, great event was, that essentially spiritual revival that God sent 500 years ago. And the Reformation was essentially a, a revival of Bible reading, Bible reading and Bible preaching. The Roman Catholic Church had withheld the Bible from the people. They had withheld the Bible from the native tongue of the people. They had buried the Bible under mountains of tradition and superstition. And the Reformation essentially gave the Bible back to the ordinary man and woman. Central to that revival was preaching through the whole Bible so that ordinary people would understand the plot line of the Bible. 
when the, the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli began to preach at the Grossmünster in Zurich, uh, he stood up and he commenced that he was going to begin preaching with the first verse of Matthew, and he would continue preaching through the book of Matthew, and then later he would preach through other sections of the New Testament and through books of the Old Testament. And for the next 12 years, that's exactly what he did. He preached through the whole Bible in that uh, city's great uh, pulpit. Now, to us, that doesn't sound so unusual, but in the pre-Reformation church, it was highly unusual. Uh, when there was preaching at all, as the people could understand what was being said, it was largely sh very short sermons preached on the liturgy. People weren't uh, given uh, an overview of the Bible, weren't taken through the Bible consecutively. And so, uh, people who didn't have Bibles of their own, uh, who didn't hear the Bible preached in church, knew very little about the Bible. And when Zwingli began uh, his, his whole process of systematic Bible preaching, uh, it was an extraordinary experience for, for some people. There was um, a teenager within the congregation who kept a diary of his feelings at the time, a man by the name of Thomas Platter. And he wrote in his diary, I felt that someone was lifting me by the hair right up into the ceiling. And he began to study the Bible himself. Uh, he wanted to learn the original languages. And he labored during the day, and he studied through the night. And in order to keep himself awake at night when he was studying the Bible, he filled his mouth with sand so that the gritting of the sand against his teeth would keep him awake so that he was able to study the Bible. Uh, the rediscovery of the Bible at the time of the Reformation was explosive. Uh, one of uh, the, the, uh, the writers, Roland Bainton, comments on the impact it had, the discovery of America had produced no such excitement. Wonderful to think people being gripped by the, the preaching of the word. Just as the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now, it was the teachings or the doctrines of the apostles to which the apostles, uh, the, the people committed themselves. Bruce Milne, in uh, the, the preface of his, his little classic book, Know the Truth, uh, gives us four reasons why it's important for every Christian to grapple with Christian doctrine. First of all, every Christian, no matter how recently a person is a Christian, every Christian is a theologian. It's not just an, an elite group uh, who discuss abstruse concepts that are theologians. Uh, theology uh, is simply the, the science of God. It's speech about God. And all of us have a theology. You have a theology tonight. You might not have a good theology, but you have a theology, and it's up to you to have a good theology, because it's only good theology that glorifies God. 
That's the first thing. We are all theologians. Secondly, studying the Scriptures is the key to finding answers to all the problems and all the questions that we encounter in life. All the problems, all the questions that you have, the, the answer to them will be found not in Encyclopedia Britannica, but they'll be found in the Bible. And therefore, we devote ourselves to the Scriptures. Third, studying doctrine is an expression of loving God with our minds. Yeah? We shall love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. No one is called to be a mindless Christian. Everyone is called to use our minds to search the Scriptures, have a proper understanding of God and His requirements, and thus to glorify God. To love Him with our minds. Are you loving God with your mind? And fourthly, studying doctrine in the Bible is important because that's how we meet with Jesus. There is no other Jesus than the Jesus we meet in the Bible. And our, our, our knowledge and our relationship with Jesus is accurate insofar as it is true to the revelation we meet with in the Bible. So there's no substitute for being devoted to the Bible. There's no substitute, there's no opt-out for, from being a Bible student. From the beginning we start the Christian road uh, until God takes us into his presence, we're to be students of the Bible. And there's no, there's no substitute for that. Now, people are uh, often impatient with that idea, and we're inclined to be pragmatic. You know, and we go, in other words, we go for what, what seems to work, or what seems to fit in with this, the expectations of the culture around us, rather than confront those expectations with the Bible. In all kinds of ways, we're pragmatic. People are pragmatic in terms of moral matters or uh, in terms of what we do with our, our money and our family and our work. Pragmatism reigns. You might think in the future that we are immune because we have a confession that we believe in. We have a confession of faith. But confessionalism in its own is not a safeguard because unless, unless you're actually a student of the Bible and convinced of the truths that our, our confession teaches, then the confession quickly becomes a dead letter. And mysticism or a kind of pietism where people stress that inward feeling and subjective experience, that wouldn't stand you either in good stead. Because those things are so fickle. But careful study of the Bible will be a guide to our life and our faith. Study of our Bible series business uh, is something to which we have to devote ourselves to, to be absolutely committed to. Uh, my experience uh, over years in the ministry that very often we think that things are, are quite good in the congregation and that simply because people are in church regularly, they will be reading their Bibles day by day. But it's my experience that that is not uh, generally the case. That very often uh, 
people are simply not reading their Bibles regularly. They've let it lapse, they're, they're drifting, and need to be brought back to the, the bread and butter of Christianity and reminded that uh, we will stagnate or at worst backslide unless we are reading our Bibles. Uh, John Wesley's mother, Susanna, uh, when John was leaving home, presented him with a Bible, and inside she wrote, this book will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. There is a, a battle uh, going on around this whole matter of commitment to Bible reading. And the, the first step towards victory is recognizing that we are in a war, that Satan will do everything he can to keep us from reading the Bible. Listen to C.S. Lewis. The moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come rubbing it. See what he's saying? It's not something which is, uh, comes naturally and spontaneously. It's something that we have to strive for. We need to be devoted. And there is no substitute for reading your Bible every day. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Therefore, we need to set aside a time. Uh, we need to grab a notebook for writing down what we've done. We need to commit ourselves to a practice, a way of reading our Bible. Uh, maybe we need to make a rule, uh, or we need to covenant with God in some way. Uh, there's all kinds of, of, uh, of covenants we could make with God. That we will, will not have breakfast until the bread of life itself has entered our system that morning. We'll be in our Bibles before we're in our cornflakes. Uh, the Bible is the food without which we will become weak as Christians. We need to keep uh, our, our interest in Bible reading, and that's something that's been uh, a bit of variety, so that maybe sometimes we want to be reading through the Bible uh, in a year or in three years, and so we'll be reading largest chunks. Or maybe uh, we want to use notes, which will take us through more slowly, and uh, you know, it's our practice to distribute the explore notes, and explore notes are great, uh, but sometimes it's good to shift away from explore notes and use something else. In different ways, we keep our appetite for Bible reading. It's also good to try to make our own one book of the Bible or one section of the Bible to really dig deep, to read it perhaps along with a commentary, to spend time in it so that this becomes familiar ground. James Gray uh, was. 19th century American who was an associate of D.L. Moody and he once told a story about how a young man had made an impression on his life. He was impressed by this young Christian's uh, demeanor, uh, his confidence in Christian things and so, uh, so challenged was he that he asked the man once what the, what the secret of his walk with God was. 
And the man said, it all started through reading Ephesians. And he was quite surprised by this answer. It all started through reading Ephesians. And so he, he, uh, he explained, on one occasion when I was on a short holiday, I took a pocket edition of Ephesians with me. Lying down one afternoon, I read all six chapters. My interest was so aroused that I read the entire epistle again. In fact, I did not finally lay it down until I had gone through it some 15 times. He said, when I rose to go into the house, I was in possession of Ephesians, or rather, Ephesians was in possession of me. I had the feeling that I'd been lifted up to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, a feeling that was new to me. And that challenged the man himself, that challenged Gray to, uh, to master the scriptures for himself, to saturate his heart and mind with the word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Uh, secondly, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. They're taking these two together because they are indicative of the life of the church. In other words, they, they devoted themselves to the church, to the communion of saints and the sacraments. Now, to the worldly person, those things seem very unimpressive. And that's true of all these commitments. Uh, it's it's the, the, the secret to their, their glory. They are fundamentally unimpressive. There is no great secret. The non-Christian trots out his hostility to institutional religion. And even some, some Christians in the church, uh, sometimes will, will, you'll, you'll hear them speak foolishly about uh, Jesus and the church as though you could separate the church and that Jesus loves from Jesus himself. The church is the bride of Christ. If we love Jesus, we love his bride. We're devoted to her. And the church, uh, it's like motherhood and apple pie. It's something that everybody says is a good thing. But when it comes down to it, our devotion is shown by the things that we attach to strongly. And our devotion to the church is uh, reflected on uh, how we turn up. To show up is, is the first mark of being committed to something. One of the early church fathers, Cyprian, said, he cannot have God as his father who will not have the church as his mother. The church is there to nurture us. It's where we are with like-minded people who will encourage us. Uh, it's where we're taught the truth, where we receive support and encouragement. But, you know, we also need the church for, for other reasons. We need the church because in the church we, we have people who are not like us. We, we need the church because in the church we will we'll meet with people who will challenge us. Uh, there are things that take place in the church, uh, exhortation and admonishment and, and so on, uh, which uh, require that, that uh, robust interchange that will only happen in the fellowship of the church. And by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, Christians grow in meekness, in submitting to the reforming influences of the saints and especially the, the leadership of the church. Devotion to the church. Uh, typify the two things by the sacraments and by uh, shared life. 
wonder if you were surprised at the, you know, the, the mention of the breaking of bread. You know, would it have been something that you would have itemized in, in, a, in a short verse about things that are important? The sacraments are important. Uh, we're not going to speak much about the sacraments tonight. Leave that for another time. But the sacraments are a means of grace. Uh, they're a, a visible gospel. And we, we always need to remind ourselves to appreciate uh, what happens when we see baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. They, they demonstrate the gospel. And fellowship, the fellowship uh, is ex- expanded in the verses that follow in very practical terms. To have fellowship, to know fellowship, is sharing your house with other people when you have a meal together. Helping out people uh, when they're going through a hard time. Giving something to somebody who is in need. Fellowship is a very practical idea. Fellowship is not uh, hanging around, chatting over a cup of coffee. Uh, That can be fellowship. But it's wider, deeper, higher than that. Prayer. They devoted themselves to, it's literally, the prayers. The prayers. Word. Sacraments. Prayer. So ordinary. We call these things the the ordinary means of grace. Time and time again we'll be tempted to despise them. Time and time again we'll be tempted to go for something that seems a bit more exciting. And time and time again we'll need to be pulled back and we'll need to be reminded uh, to return to them and make them central in our thinking. Prayer especially is something because of its very nature that we will be tempted to overlook as though it was an extra, an optional extra. Uh, There are two aspects of prayer in mind here. There's the prayer that you have in your own home, uh, in your own room, when you're on your knees before God and there's no one there. And there is a a death to self that's involved in committing time to prayer because nobody knows but God. And of course, that's the, that's the wisdom of God, isn't it? God chooses to advance his work by something which sounds a death knell to human pride and will glorify only him. Because in it, we're acknowledging our weakness and our dependence upon God. But it's the same with, with prayer meetings. Prayer meetings. Uh, remember uh, when we were worshipping in, uh, in a big church on the stage, the minister said, uh, sadly, it's been said, if you want to be lonely around this church, start prayer meetings. What, a, what an indictment. The early believers devoted themselves to the prayers, to the times and places when people gathered together. They wouldn't be missing. They would be in their place. They were committed to corporate prayer. Prayer is something which doesn't earn as plaudits. No one's going to, uh, to give you a, a round of applause because you turned up at the prayer meeting or because you spent time on your knees that morning in prayer. But God will get glory when we acknowledge his way of advancing his kingdom. And when 
God added 3,000 to the church. These 3,000 were people of prayer. The work of the Holy Spirit to impress upon them the importance of prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. When Saul of Tarsus is converted and Ananias is told to go and see him, uh, he said to, uh, the Lord tells him to go uh, to Straight Street to see Saul, for behold, he's praying. He's praying like never before. He's praying in the name of Jesus. He's praying as a new man. The Holy Spirit makes people people of prayer. Again, uh, there are practical ways by which we can be helped in our praying. We were thinking of these at the community groups. Uh, it's good to keep a prayer journal. Uh, it's good to have structure and persistence in your intercessions through having a book where you, you have, uh, perhaps there are uh, quotations from the Bible that help you in worship so you note down some of the, the maybe from the Psalms or from some of the prayers of the, of the Bible which express in ways that we, we don't uh, uh, attain to uh, what it is to, to glorify God. It's good to record the things that we're asking God for, uh, to have a column of things for which we're asking God, and then to record when God answers our prayers. That's a very, very encouraging uh, thing to do, and to give glory when he does that. And at the end of the day, there's no substitute for just prayer simply praying as we ought. One of, the, one of the snares that we have is to, to say to ourselves, I don't have time to pray this time, but I'll pray through the day. You know, the devil loves to hear us say that, because it is very spiritual to pray through the day, but he knows that we won't pray through the day, and that we would pray now, but he's got us in a place where we're not going to pray now. And so the thing to do again is to carve out the space in time that we will pray then and there as we can. Better to pray for a short time and not at all. Pray as we can. And if we pray as we can, God will enable us to pray more. He'll grow our prayers. Sometimes it's intimidating, isn't it, to, to read uh, some of the books of uh, the, the people that we really admire who pray for three hours every morning and possibly do anything like that. But we should pray as we can. And pray regularly. The word, the fellowship, the sacraments, the prayers. They're all not flashy. They're all ordinary. But they're absolutely vital to our Christian health, to our growth, these are the things to which God's family devote themselves. When we devote themselves, other things will get crowded out. We'll be displaced by them. And if we don't devote ourselves to them, the other things will simply crowd them out. A space of priorities, beginning with the things that are important. Let's pray. Father, what we have heard you say to us tonight is, is a reminder of something we've heard often before. 
Lord, we know that we are sinful and weak and we drift. And we pray that you'll take us back, Lord, and that you'll strengthen the moorings that attach us to those daily commitments of the word and prayer. And in our commitment to be there in the fellowship, when the people are praying, Lord, help us to do this because we love you. And that you, because you have called us into your family. Lord, increase our devotion for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 122 uh, is a psalm that breathes exuberance uh, at the thought of being with the saints, of being uh, in the place where God's people are.